Today's reading will be from Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 to 35. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerah, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in, the, in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerah. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought, brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerah quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarried over that also. So he called its name Setna. And he moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. 
From there, he went up to Bathsheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sitba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimeth, the daughter of Elan the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And the second reading, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some people say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, thank you all very much, <clears throat> and please do keep Genesis 26 open in front of you, or turn back there, um, page 20 in our church Bibles. Um, there's a coffee shop in Morningside that uh, every day, I think, it might be every week, but I think it's every day, they write someone's name on the window, and if that's your name, you get a free coffee. In Genesis 26, Isaac is the name written on the window. This is the chapter about him. That little bit about Esau, we're going to leave till next week. It connects with the next passage. Uh, This is all about him. And it is the only chapter all about Isaac. The kind of only solo episode that Isaac has in this real faith lives of Canaan that we're watching and and listening to in Genesis. His big moment. All the other chapters are about his sons from now on, Esau, Jacob. 
Even more striking than that is that, given this is his only episode, it's full of reruns. It feels like footage we've seen before, that sense of deja vu is carrying on. You know how series sometimes do that? I don't know if it's because of budget cuts or writer problems, but they sometimes have an episode that's just full of clips from previous episodes, packaged up. Haven't we heard this before? So, uh, famine and do you go to Egypt? Fear and pretending that your wife is your sister. Meeting Abimelech with Phicol and making a treaty. Like, didn't all of that happen with Abraham? Yes, it did. So we need to work out, why is Isaac treading the very same path, the same footsteps as Abraham? Anyway, because the Bible was trying to save budget, so why is it? Even more than that, given this is Isaac's only starring episode in the entire Bible, why is more than half of it talking about wells? So if you're a bit older, you'll remember this is your life. Isaac, son of Abraham, this is your life. Let's talk about wells for the second half of the episode. Why does that matter so much? Well, as ever with God's word, we need God's spirit to open our eyes and hearts to be changed by what he says. So let's uh, pray now for God's help. Our Father in heaven, I am very weak. We all are, just human beings, just jars of clay. But we thank you that your word is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. Thank you that because your voice has your power, it never returns to you empty. And so we do pray you'd work among us now. Speak to us by your Spirit in your word for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you want to see where we're going, there's an outline on the back of the uh, service sheet. And I've put the question at the top uh, as the introduction, when did Christianity past its best before date in Scotland? When did Christianity past its best before? I think that captures how many in our culture would feel uh, about the message of Jesus, that it's kind of out of date now for a modern Scotland. And it is the best before response, usually. Um, Like if a friend watched you eating some best before food, They might turn their noses up a bit, like, ooh, you you sure you want that still? How weird. You do you, but that's definitely not for me. It's mostly the best before response. Although there are forces in the culture, I think, who would be stronger than that. They'd be more the kind of it's used by date has passed. You know, they'd say it's outstayed its welcome, as in no one should believe this or be allowed to believe and act on this. You know, for public safety, we'd need this product recalled. Get it off the shelves, or change it into a different shape. It's positively dangerous. Get it out of our schools, get it out of our justice system, get it out of our politics, out of our public life. That's the world around us. Actually, I think even as Christians, we can sometimes worry, maybe the best years of the church are kind of behind us, rather than ahead of us. Maybe we are beyond our best before. I mean... We're looking a bit tired around the edges, and we're shrinking, and we're fading. Are we losing some of our vitality? Are we becoming increasingly irrelevant, kind of pushed to the back of the cupboard? Now, I realize when you're at Chalmers, it might not feel like that, because we're a city center church, and there is a lot of life going on. But statistically, nationally, that's what the facts are. So here's a national newspaper's summary from December. Um, It's about the Church of Scotland particularly, but they said this. The Church of Scotland once 
one of the most powerful forces in Scottish life, is disposing of hundreds of churches, manses, halls, and cottages over the next five years. They carry on. Congregations are in deep decline, steep decline, sorry. Its clergy are aging, and its finances are in disarray. They say that in 1982, the Church of Scotland had nearly 920,000 members. Last year, when this was written, that stood at 270,000, a decline of 70%. It says the average age of its congregants is now 62, and only 60,000 worship in person. That is not a thriving picture. And maybe one or two of us who, who feel quite confident think, well, I can understand that if, if an institutional church, if a denomination kind of hits the self-destruct button by walking away from the Bible's teaching on some moral issues, stepping away from Jesus on that, well, well yeah, maybe that pattern is explainable, we think. But Jesus' promise is he'll build his church and the gates of hell can't prevail against it. So it's going to be fine. I think most of us, though, will feel, wow, Christianity is really shrinking to the edges of Scottish life. Feeling really small, feeling like our days are numbered. Feeling like maybe we can cling on, maybe we can try and keep this church open and, I don't know, plant a few churches here and there, but, but it does feel like the church has passed its best before date. Where are the revivals of yesteryear? Billy Graham spoke to tens of thousands of people in Hampton Park. Where are the preachers of yesteryear? Where's Thomas Chalmers, Horatius Bonner, McShane, Knox, if you go way back? Where's the expansion of yesteryear? Do you know, in 1910, there was a missionary conference. We got one next Saturday, but there was one that was a big one, the first world missionary conference held in Edinburgh. I think if you tried to run an event like that, that big in this city, well, it might get cancelled. Are the best days now behind us? That feeling that the best days are now behind us is precisely what Genesis 26 was written to counter. See, by the time these events happened, Abraham is dead and buried. He's gone. The great Abraham, who everyone knew, God was with him, gone. And so the question is, will God still bless his people in this generation, the next generation, Isaac's generation, Will God be with Abraham's offspring the way he was with the great man of the past? And of course, later generations of Israel needed to know that, didn't they? As they were standing in the wilderness on the edge of the promised land, about to go into a land that God had promised but was occupied by other nations who would not recognize the name of Abraham anymore, certainly not recognize the God of the Bible had any claim in their territory. Well, Israel needed to know, is God really with us today? the way he was with Abraham. While Abraham may be dead, God is not. While Abraham's promises, sorry, while Abraham's body may be buried in a cave, those promises to Abraham are not buried with him. That's the point. That's actually why there's so much deja vu, why it's a kind of clips of things we saw with Abraham happening now with Isaac, because we need to know that God is with Isaac exactly like he was with Abraham. The next generation of this family have God with them in just the same way. And it is the same way, the same degree. It's not like Isaac is getting the afterglow of that great era, the kind of crumbs off the table, the leftovers. No, God is as fully committed in Isaac's day 
in the next generation as he was to Abraham. And that is still a big deal today. Biblically speaking, the global church is the family of Abraham. By global church, I don't mean particular institutions or denominations or countries who might call themselves a Christian country. Um, It's always been the case that, that denominations or countries can wander away from Jesus. By the global church, I just mean people who trust Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the promises the Bible says about Jesus. Galatians 3, we saw a few weeks ago, says, those who have faith are in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we're offspring of Abraham, heirs according to promise. So here's the key truth this morning. It's so key, I've put it in a box on the handout. The key truth, what we're looking at kind of all morning long, God's promise to be with and to grow his global people will continue in each new generation. Nothing can stop his oath. God's promise to be with and grow his global people will continue in each generation. Nothing can stop his oath. If you hear nothing else, please remember that this morning. Just to explain a couple of things on that. I've said each generation, because although this is, our passage is talking about Isaac, the first next generation, it's clear in the passage that it's expected to carry on. God's oath continues down the generations. Um, and secondly, I've talked about God's global people, because, yeah, we don't actually have a, a guarantee of what growth will look like in any particular country. There are, in different nations, leaner times and greener times. Sometimes explosive growth happens in a different country, as it is currently in Africa and Asia more than it is in the West. Actually, make no mistake, God will grow his people. I think locally and globally, although the rate of growth may vary. We should expect that as we reach out with the good news of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to see that with three points from the text. Just say, if you're here as not not a Christian this morning, I realize all this talk of kind of church growth and all those notices about us reaching out, you might think, do they know I'm here? (laughs) Yeah, we do. And and this, we're really glad you're here. And this chapter actually does have something to say to you, though it comes quite late in the day. So please stay with me right to the end, um, which I think does does encourage um, folks who aren't believers how they should respond to this message. But let's get into the text. I've got three points, um, and there are actually three threats. So the way we see this point, that God will grow his people in every generation, is by seeing how threats come and then are are dealt with by God. Don't stop God's purposes. Um, So three threats. The first is famine. The second is fearful failure. And the third I've called foes, which, yes, is stretching the letter F to its, kind of, to its, its maximal alliterative potential. It's basically famine, failure, our sin, and opposition, or foes who oppose. Um, three three um, threats to God's promises. All three of those are things that Abraham faced, and God carried him through. And now we see Isaac face them, and God carries him through. So let's get into it. Verses 1 to 6. Threat 1, the threat of famine. The uh, message here being that famine won't stop God multiplying his people. Now, it's a long time ago now, but if you were here back in Genesis 12, no sooner had God given the promises to Abraham and said, go to this land, well, famine struck. Actually, for Abraham, that was a moment of panic, and he went to Egypt and left the land um, to, to bad consequences. Now, what's the significance of famine as a threat to God's promises? 
well, on a simple level, you need to eat. And the wells are a bit like that. You need to drink. Uh, it's kind of basic life existence, especially in a nomadic existence. Like, there's no Tesco, no larder, no freezer. Uh, this is a deadly threat. I mean, those promises say they're going to be fruitful and multiply, like the stars of the sky and the, the sand on the seashore. But I imagine they're thinking at the moment, well, we might not even survive this. It was a serious threat. On top of that, though, this threat of famine reminds us of the fallen nature of this world, the curse, actually, on this world. So back in Genesis 3, two aspects of this world are cursed. One is uh, pain in childbearing. And we saw that last week, didn't we, with Rebecca and her infertility and the sadness and, and tragedy of that. And we also saw God can reverse that curse. He's got the power to fix this world. Well, the same now with famine. The other curse in Genesis 3 is this. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That abundantly fertile Eden was turned to the the grim grind of dust and struggle that work in this world can be. So famine, a symptom of our fallen world. But no sooner has has, uh, Isaac hit that challenge uh, where Abraham had balked and gone to Egypt... When our God reassures him, verse 2, the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, there's the next generations, I will give all these lands. I'll establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And so Isaac settled in Gerar. Now, there's a lot there that's striking, I think. Um, There's God's kindness that he's more specific with Isaac. Don't go to Egypt. There's Isaac's obedience. He didn't, verse 6. He stays in in, um, Gerar. He has faith here. Most striking of all, though, is those massive promises, isn't it? And particularly the basis on which they're given the basis. So it's the same promises as to Abraham. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. I'll give to your offspring these lands. Uh, And actually, it's not not watered down. This is my point about it's not crumbs off the table. It's exactly the same. In fact, it's a reminder of how big it actually is. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, verse 4. I'll give to you offspring all these lands. And then listen to this, the global thing again. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. A reminder, this, this plan of God is to save the world, not just the Jewish nation. Or in other words, Isaac, look, I know there's a famine, but I am 100% committed to growing your people, to growing this family of God. There will be a massive, innumerable multitude from every type, tribe and tongue, and it will happen through you, I'm with you to achieve that. Nothing's going to stop us now. That's the promise. Amazing. But I think the basis of the promise is even more striking. Did you see that? Look at verse 3. I'll give you all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. As in, it's because of my oath to Abraham, there's nothing going to stop us now. It's because my ironclad commitment to to bless him and his offspring that means you can be confident I'm with you. 
And verse 5 is even more striking. Uh, End of verse 4. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Uh, This is the only really technical bit of the talk this morning. So um, uh, tune in if you want that or just rest for a couple of minutes and then I'll get you back on in a couple of minutes' time or you can ask questions later. Um, This this verse 5 is quite puzzling for a couple of reasons. Just have a look at it. Um, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. It's confusing because up to this point, we haven't had mention of kind of God's law or commandments or statutes coming to Abraham. In fact, Galatians says it comes 430 years later at Mount Sinai when God gives his law to Israel. So, so that's puzzling what's going on there. And actually, if you know anything about Abraham, the idea that he's kept all of God's law, he's, he's obeyed, you might be thinking, what? Really? I mean, even if he was given the Ten Commandments off camera when Genesis doesn't record it, well, he's broken them, hasn't he? Adulterous, deceitful Abraham. What's going on? Well, it's important to to realize this isn't referring to Abraham perfectly obeying all of God's law as given at Sinai. Um, I don't actually think he did have the full law because of Galatians. I think it's actually referring to the righteousness he had by faith And particularly chapter 22, when he trusted God, he actively obeyed God's voice, he trusted God's voice in chapter 22. Remember chapter 22, that was the time when God told uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham had faith that he should do that and God would provide a solution somehow. In one sense, it didn't make any sense. Isaac was the promised heir. Isaac had to live and yet, God, uh, Abraham took God at his word, trusted God would provide. And in the end of that episode, God did provide a substitute for Isaac, a substitute sacrifice. At the end of that uh, passage, you get God making an oath because Abraham obeyed his voice. That's the episode we're talking about, Genesis 22. But here's the important bit. So zone back in, that's the technical bit. The important bit is God saying now in Genesis 26 that Isaac's blessing is certain because of the oath already made, because of that great act of obedience from Abraham, that one act of obedience. And that one-time oath guarantees the blessing going forward. That's the striking thing. A lot like Hebrews said for Christians, Jesus' one act of obedience at the cross and the oath God has made on the basis of that, that Jesus will be our priest forever guarantees blessing to us going forward. Or to put it even more simply, this fallen world can throw some really difficult circumstances in our direction. Famine. Conditions that suggest church growth would be really hard to sustain. But God says, I'm 100% committed to multiplying this people around the globe. I'm oath-bound That's point one. Famine won't stop God multiplying his people. Feel free to ask questions at the question time about that if you want to. But we need to move on, not least because I think the third one is the most amazing one. So I'm keen to get get to that. But let's get into point two. We're no sooner through the first threat, and we get to this second threat, which I've called fearful failure. Fearful failure won't stop God multiplying his people. Now, with this one, I think we need to realize there's a threat that Isaac has in his head 
Uh, it's there in verse um, 7. He, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Isaac's fearful here, just like Abraham was. He thinks if he lets it be known that he's at Rebecca's husband, that well, they'll get rid of him to get to her. And so, like father, like son, he tries the same lie. And it is a lie to protect himself at the expense of others, at the expense of Rebecca, her safety, her dignity, at the, respect, at the expense, actually, of the people around him, the nations um, who, who he's lying to. It's pretty striking that. We've just had verse 4. Uh, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's what Isaac's role is supposed to be, to bring blessing to the nation, to bring God's truth to the nation. But here he is lying to the nations, not telling the truth, because of fear, in a way that might actually lead to them missing out on the blessing or experiencing a curse. Abimelech in verse 10 is quite right, isn't he, to say, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. What are you doing? Why didn't you tell us the truth? Striking, I've been reflecting on that. Like, How often is that temptation, that fear, lead me to be tempted to hide what I, what I know God's about? So say the truth. At which point, we might well be thinking, well, that's, that's surely blown it now. I mean... Whether, whether we think that about ourselves or whether we think about that others, surely now God's going to discipline Isaac. Like surely the promise is going to get downgraded now. But then look at verse 12. Isaac, straight after Abimelech, protects uh, Rebekah and Isaac. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained, nothing, gained more and more until he became very wealthy. It's the same point again. It's extraordinary, actually. Nothing's going to stop God from blessing every generation forward of Abraham's family. That offspring uh, down the line, God won't stop multiplying his people. Famine won't stop it. Fearful failure won't stop it, even on the part of his own people. At that point, we might have questions about justice. Like, hang on, how can a good God watch that happening and then give a blessing. What does that say about, about Isaac's treatment of Rebekah or about the, the, the wrongness of it all? Aren't there consequences for sin? Well, yes, there are. Actually, if you come back next week, uh, Genesis 27 is going to show us some of the mess in the family that's produced uh, when, when God's people um, don't trust him and, and do things that aren't right. So please come back uh, next week. And just to say, as a, a practical notice, next week Genesis is in the evening because uh, we're having a, a talk as part of the missions weekend in the morning. So, so tune in online or, or come in the evening for Genesis 27. But we will see next week that sinful actions do have messy consequences on the ground. But one consequence they do not have, as this chapter is showing us, is stopping God from multiplying his people. He's committed to that, oath-bound. He will grow this church, the church, the global church, and the gates of hell won't stop it. Even the sin of his own people won't stop it. I do wonder if we believe that, if we know that deep down. The church in our nation is reeling, I think, at the moment, in lots of ways. Um, and it's not just all out there or in a different denomination or whatever. 
in Bible teaching, evangelical churches like this, there have been a number of scandals, high-profile moral failures of respected leaders, the misuse of power, abuse of position. And of course, more widely, we have seen people who should be defending the faith and the church from error actually promoting it, siding with the culture. You could say fearful failure is all around. But actually, that's not going to stop God building his church. might slow it down in our particular patch, but it's not going to stop God growing the church and blessing the family of Abraham. He's committed. Now, next week, we'll see some of the consequences um, uh, of how Isaac's behavior messes up his family. But actually, actually, where the consequences most fall is at the cross. You see, the whole point of Jesus coming to die was to take the price of this kind of behavior from Isaac and countless people in this family ever since. Uh, at the cross, Jesus, who had perfect performance, always trusted God, never through fear failed. At the cross, he stepped into our shoes so that we could step into his. And if you're thinking, whoa, 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 how did we get to the cross? We're suddenly jumping to the cross. That seems a long way from Genesis. No, Genesis 22 showed us the season-ending finale of the Abraham cycle showed us that Isaac deserved to die, but God provided a substitute. Remember that? God provided a substitute, the animal to die in his place, pointing forward to the day, to the day that the Son of God would voluntarily step onto the cross to pay for the failure of Isaac, to pay for the cheating of Jacob from last week pay for the distrust of Abraham when he went to Egypt, to pay for us. We don't always get it right. I said, if you're not a Christian, stay with me, and I will say something eventually that's relevant to you. Um, there are really only two ways to face God. That's what the Bible says. Um, there isn't an option not to face God, because when we die, we meet him, or when Jesus comes back, which might be sooner. And there's only two ways to face God, on our own terms, with our own record of performance, which if you're anything like me would not be, would not be a, a thought. Experience would be a terrifying thing to meet a holy God with everything I've done and said and thought. To meet him on my own terms, in my own shoes, with my own record, or to meet him clothed with Jesus' righteousness washed clean by his record. Those are the options. And extraordinarily here, Isaac is being treated the second way because God provided a substitute. He's a failure, but God is blessing him regardless. Okay, that's our second point. Fearful failure won't stop God multiplying his people. But it is time now to talk about the wells. If you've been on tenterhooks thinking, what are these wells about? This is your moment. Um, and the thing about the wells, they really dominate everything from 14 to 33, which is where we're finishing, 14 to 33. The thing about the wells is they're disputed. That's the key thing. They're disputed, these wells. So our third point is about enemies or resistance, opposition to God's plan. Here's our third threat. Foes who oppose won't stop God multiplying his people. Foes who oppose won't stop God multiplying his people. This is the thing that's most struck me personally this week. And particularly, I think, as we think about contemporary Scotland, 
Um, just in verse 14, you, you see the opposition beginning to grow. The Philistines, they envy uh, Isaac's growth, his success. They don't want him playing a major role in their land. That's the issue. It's fine for him to be some tiny guy on the margins, but it's starting to get out of hand as he grows. And their plan, it's really striking. Look at verse 15. Their plan was to make Abraham a one-hit wonder, a one-generation wonder. Verse 15, uh, it's been put in brackets in our version, the English version, but those are added. This is not a kind of, by the way, this is massive. Verse 15, now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. We know that's far from minor, because if you look at verse 18, we're told exactly the same information again. Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the names that his father had given them. What's going on here? It's clearly important. Told it twice. What's going on? What's the Philistine strategy? Basically, they're trying to eradicate all traces of God's family from their land. Sure, in a previous generation, Abraham had a role. He had a voice here, a claim. He he was one of the voices in society. But Canaan is now a progressive nation, and the God of Abraham is not really welcome here, past his best before date. Yes, in the past, we had legal commitments to to give Abraham a place. Uh, We had contracts about the wells, but, but as far as we're concerned, those don't last from one generation to another. And so the Philistines, they're going around renaming locations that Abraham had named, They're filling in wells that Abraham had dug. Quick, let's remove all traces of God's people from this land. You have no place here, they say. That is precisely what some voices in our culture are trying to do at the moment. I mean, we don't care if if Christianity used to have a big role in public life. Don't, Don't really recognize that Christian values provided lots of input into the legal system or the freedom of speech or respect for individuals or the welfare state or the education um, system or scientific endeavor in the West? No, we think Christianity's had its best before date. It's time to fill in the wells. Now, striking this, it is different from just you, ha- you do your thing, we'll do our thing. Now, this is we don't want your thing around here. At which point, you might be thinking, hang on, stop, 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 stop. Hang on. Scotland isn't like the promised land of Canaan, so is it a bit forcing it to draw parallels with our nation? Uh, That's really helpful, I think, that question. Uh, And it's right to say that that Scotland is not the same as the land of Canaan. We shouldn't expect uh, what happened with Israel uh, to happen here directly. But actually, what was going on was the Philistines were kind of countering God's promises. God's promise said... This family will grow here in this land. And they were saying, no, we don't want that. And we do actually have a promise from Psalm 2 that that Jesus, the king of God's people, the king of Israel, does uh, have all the nations as his inheritance. And the great commission Jesus gave at the end of Matthew says, go and make disciples of all nations, which includes this one. So while there isn't a promise that Scotland could or would become or should become Christendom, there is a promise that Jesus' family will grow across the world, including this nation. 100% God is committed to that. That's not always a popular mission. But 
But what's striking in this passage is though the Philistines start with a real animosity to, to Isaac and his family. Verse 16, Abimelech says to Isaac, um, uh, sorry, yeah, verse 16, go away from us. Uh, verse 19, when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found, find there a spring of water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. I mean, these well names, they're telling us a story, um, and it's a pretty wearying story. I imagine everyone was pretty dis- discouraged in Isaac and his family at this point. Um, Essek, the well of Can- Isaac and his family, they're opposition. Sibna, the well of enmity. Isaac and his family, they're feeling opposed at every turn. feels like they try and take one step forward and get pushed two steps back. But they keep persevering. And then verse 22, a breakthrough. He moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us. We shall be fruitful in the land. Striking. The well names go from contention and enmity to God makes room. And the last one is oath, Beersheba. God makes an oath. God then, verse 24, reiterates his promise. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. As words of Jesus in the Great Commission, I am with you even to the end of the age. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And so another well is dug. And actually, even Abimelech, um, so hostile at first, so determined to, to squeeze Isaac and, and God's people out of the land, to, to cover over all the wells, even Abimelech comes in verse 28 to finally make peace. Verse 28, they said, We say, see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we've not touched you and done nothing but good and sent you away in peace. I'm not sure it was quite like that, but um, this bit's true. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Even the people around notice, wow, God is really with you. We've thrown everything we can at you and yet here you still are. Through contention, through opposition, God made room according to his oath. Those are the well names. Now, it doesn't always happen just in one neat chapter, does it? This could take decades, it could take hundreds of years. It might just be on the final day sometimes that this recognition uh, comes. But foes who oppose will not stop God multiplying his people. And across world history, global history, the history of the church, there are countless examples of this pattern being repeated. When communist USSR clamped down against the church, or when foreign missionaries were thrown out of China, or when the killing fields of Cambodia decimated the church, or when Christians in the Middle East are forced underground, even in Acts, when the early church was first persecuted and thrown out of Jerusalem, explosive growth occurred. That was the consequence. Foes can't stop God multiplying his people. Our time's up. I hope, I don't know if I'm managing to get it across, but I hope you can see how extraordinarily encouraging Genesis 26 should be to us in our generation. You can be going through a lean time where it feels like 
oh, we'll, we'll, I mean, we'll be doing well if we, just, if we just hold steady, if we just stop the decline, if we just flatline, we'll be doing well. Days of famine. And God says, I will bless you and multiply you like stars in the sky. The nations will be blessed. You can be going through a time where it's pretty scary that the, the folks around us, we're tempted to not even tell the truth to them because we wonder what they'll do to us. And God says, I'm just going to bless you even if you fail, even if you have failed. And then opposition. You could be facing, and I do think it, we're facing it more this generation than, than in recent generations in, in the UK. You can be fa- facing people who are, who are actually actively trying to remove you from the country and from public life. And God says, I will make room and I will multiply my family, the global church. If that's not a reason to come on Saturday uh, to our local church global mission, I don't know what is. That's a day invested in what God is doing. Doing it in our day here, doing it in our day all over the world. Um, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. That you would commit yourself to sinful people like Abraham or Isaac or us. And that you would bless us and through us bless others even in our weak, fearful, often failing participation. Thank you for that. And we do just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with with power and love and self-control. Thank you, you're more than able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.